what you are doing in this church, what you're doing in this nation, even when sometimes it doesn't look like anything is going our way. God, we can trust you, and we know that you are good. We know that all things will work together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes. Father, we pray that today our purposes, our hearts, might be aligned more closely to the vision that you have for this planet, for the plan that you've laid out since before time began, for the lives of those that are in this place and the lives of those that are outside of these four walls. Father, I pray that you would quiet my heart as I seek to bring the words of Nehemiah to our people. We love you and we pray all these things in your precious son's name. Amen. We are in Nehemiah. This is week three for us. been talking about what does it look like to be a reformer. Uh, in many cases, uh, we can't just walk in and say, do you want to be a reformer? Uh, to further clarify specifically what we're talking about, all believers in Christ Jesus should and are reformers. They should be and they are reformers. So what do we mean by a reformer? Well, again, just to kind of bring us up to speed from the past couple of weeks, a, re- a reformer is someone who can look around and, and, and see, observe, understand that things are not the way that they should be. If you can't recognize that things are not the way that they should be, you're not a reformer. Most likely because we, we think that the way that things are is just fine. It's the way that things should be. But a believer in Christ Jesus understands that the way that the world looks right now is not how he intended it to be in Eden. When we talk in Gospel and Kingdom about the pattern of the kingdom, understanding that God's people are supposed to be in God's place and under his rule. We can look around and certainly see that not everyone is a person, a people of God. Those that are apart from Christ Jesus, that do not profess faith in him alone and nothing else, and place their trust in Him for their salvation. They are not part of God's people. And so we that are believers that do profess Christ as our Savior and Lord need to understand that it is our mission as a reformer to bring God's people into the fold. And so every believer should be a reformer in the sense that if the pattern of the kingdom is to understand God's place or God's people in God's place under God's rule, we are to take that perfect pattern that we saw in Eden and expand those borders. And so when we talk as a church about kingdom, when we say we are bringing kingdom to the nations, what do we mean? We mean you, you believer, you are God's people. You are God's place. He resides in you. He has seen fit to make his home and the Holy Spirit inside of your heart. <coughs> He's no longer in buildings that have been constructed. He's in the only perfect thing of creation that was good, right? He's chosen to reside in you. And as you go forward, you bring about God's rule. And so as a reformer, All believers should fall into this category. (coughs) We saw in week one, what does it mean to be a reformer? What does it look like? Well, a reformer should have a broken heart about the way that things are. We are three weeks into this. Most churches, when they do series, only go for about four weeks. In fact, we've done a lot of those. We only go for like four or five weeks a month at a time. And then we shift either books or topics. So technically, we'd be on the, on the downside of the hill in this series. And if at week three, we don't have a broken heart about the way that things are, we're missing the point. We're missing the point. You see, on this very, very snowy, cold day, 
It is a huge call to action that God has ordained for Renovation Church to hear today as he has placed us in chapter 2 of Nehemiah. Without the beginning of chapter 2 in Nehemiah, the rest of the book does not happen. My concern is that today, in this call to action, we will find that many of us have not been in action. Because we don't have a broken heart about the way that things are. And if we don't have a broken heart about the way that things are, then we won't have a sense from God that there's something we should do about it. As we saw last week, that if we're going to be reformers, there have to be certain convictions that we hold, right? We have to have deep convictions about who God says He is. About who God says we are. If we don't have convictions about God's covenant relationships with people, we're not going to be bringing covenant relationships to people. And so finally, we ended last week understanding that we have to have deep convictions about seeking first the kingdom of God. Well, that's where we find ourselves this week in a call to action. Is on week three, do you have deep convictions about the way that things should be? Have you been burdened yet for God's vision? I hope that you have. I hope that as you've read through Ezra and Nehemiah, as you prepare for Sundays, as you've heard the preaching of the word the past two Sundays, as you've talked about it in home gatherings over the past two weeks, I hope you begin to see things in your life that are not the way that they should be. I hope that you can see in creation things that are not the way that they should be. And so I think the question that we have to ask then, just like Nehemiah says, Nehemiah sees things are not the way that they should be. Jerusalem is burning. And so the natural question is, what am I going to do about it? What's next? What happens now? It'd be as if reading a new story in a novel and you get through the introduction and then it ends. If nothing happens after everything has been set up, then what was the point of the story? In fact, it's not a story at all. So I think the question we have to ask today are, are, are these, the questions. Have you been burdened yet for God's vision? How are you going to accomplish it? How do we go from the dream in our head to the work in our hands? How do we serve in the, in the Shema style to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? How do we love our neighbors as ourselves? How do we bring that about in this world? Those are the questions for today. Those are the questions that I think Nehemiah is going to help us work through. But the first thing I want to do is make sure that we understand that the, as we've talked about several weeks ago, the biblical theology of Nehemiah. How does the New Testament interpret the Old Testament? And how do we see this in the grand redemptive narrative that it is? And for that, I want us to pay attention heavily today to Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, go there. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Should be on the screen. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is our theme today. This is our call to action today. If the question, the title of the sermon is how mission gets done, we need to start here. We are his, that's God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so I think a good question as we unpack this is what makes a good work? What makes a good work? But it has to start with this kind of definition, that something that springs from affection for God is a good work. Something that springs from affection for God is a good work. I was encouraged this past weekend, on Friday night, uh, we had the Undaunted Conference, the CrossCon. Um, it was hugely encouraging to my heart. And 
John Piper's uh, led off the conference. It is not usually how conferences with him go. He's usually the closing uh, finale in a very fireworks-type manner. Um, this one began with fireworks. Uh, and after his session, there was a panel where he almost got into a fight, uh, which is exciting. <laughs> see fisticuffs come up with, uh, Dr. with uh, John Piper. Um, he, got, he, was, he was jazzed early, and everyone else was still kind of warming up. But he was ready to roll. But he reminded us that as far as movements go, as far as missions go, as far as actions that we could take go, he says that any movement gains eternal significance when it is rooted in the care and enabling of joining people to joy in Christ. The point is to join people to Christ, to make them God's people. That means enjoying God. And so for the good works that God has prepared for us in Christ Jesus before all time began is a work that springs from affection for God. It is something you do because you love the Father. So our major, major point today that everything else is going to fall under is that we must take the opportunities that God gives us. We must take the opportunities that God gives us. You see, God has created for us opportunities to express our love for Jesus to either God himself or to our neighbor. When we think about the Shema, what are the two aspects of that? It's loving God and loving others, loving our neighbor, right? God has created opportunities for us to do that. He's already prepared them. We need to understand that God has provided good works for you in whatever circumstance you find yourself in. I think often when we read this verse that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, we think, yeah, in life, at some point, after I finish this stage that I'm in, I'll be about the good works that God has created for me. After I finish school, after I'm in college, after I graduate, after I have a wife, after I have kids, after I've got to the top of my career, after we've got enough money to be safe, after the kids are gone, after the winter's over, now I'm, now I'm over. If we're not careful, we're going to find ourselves always waiting for what's next, missing the fact that God has given us opportunities in whatever circumstance you are in right now. Anywhere that you can find God and people, you can do this. That's pretty much everywhere. God's everywhere. People are relatively everywhere, even today. <laughs> even in a foot and a half of snow, people are there. So anywhere in your life that you can find God and people, you can love God and you can serve Him. You can love people and you can serve people because God has you in a position right now in a specific situation for a very explicit purpose God has you in position in a specific situation for an explicit purpose and if we're not careful we're going to miss the opportunities that God has created for us to do good works that he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in And so the call to action today is the fact that we have got to take the opportunities that God gives us. If we're going to seek first the kingdom of God, that means not passing on these opportunities for whatever reason. I'm not going to go after anyone specific here. I can start with myself. But I think it's endemic of us all. We're all lazy. We're all tired. We're all busy. We're all swamped with work, with family. We're all catching up. Ask people this week how they're doing. You'll hear all of them. Even in that circumstance, God has created good things for you to do, that you should walk in them. God has plans for us, that we should walk on them. So, 
Let's go to our primary text in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11. O Lord, I beseech thee, may thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and the prayer of thy servants who delight to revere thy name, and make thy servant successful today, and grant him compassion, or grant him favor before this man. Now, I was the cupbearer to the king, and it came about in the month Nisan, not the car, but the month March, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, so the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate, and his gates have been consumed by fire. And then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. First thing I want you to see under our main point is that mission is planned before time began. How does mission get done? Well, understand first that mission is planned before time began. We enter into a very interesting passage here that most commentaries give about a page and a half to. So I got to do some nice... Uh, you know, hard work this week digging into the passage, um, formating, uh, formulating my own elbow grease in this. Um, there's not a lot of help to be garnered other than this is what happened. Thank you. Uh, welcome to narratives. <laughs> in this narrative, we see a conversation take place that, that is relatively shocking for many, many reasons. And we're going to take apart a couple of these things. The first thing is you see him enter in. There was wine there. He's the cupbearer. I believe Matt explained the, the significance of a cupbearer, right, last week. And so a cupbearer takes the wine from the cup, pours it into his hand, and drinks the wine. The king waits. No foaming, no sweating, no dropping to the floor dead. All right, the, the wine's good. No one's trying to kill me. Thanks. Thanks, cupbearer. I appreciate you. And then he drinks his wine. The same thing happens for the food as well. The cupbearer is not just a guy that uh, has to drink the wine. He's not just a guy who uh, gets to drink the wine. The cupbearer is a person that the king trusts his own life with. This man is a Jew to a Persian king. The Persian king trusts his life with a Jew from Israel. God has put him in a position much like he rose Joseph, a Jew, an Israelite, a Hebrew, to number two in the land next to Pharaoh, we find another one in the same position. God has put him in a position. This plan happened before time began. But what's interesting is this dialogue happens because something is amiss. Something's weird. Nehemiah makes explicit note that he had not been sad in his presence. We can take that and assume, there are a couple of different ways that you could interpret that specific reason, but one of the ones that seems to make the most sense from my study is that he's trying to control his emotions. And he's been weeping and fasting in private, but 
When you enter into the ancient courts of kings, you are not allowed to be sad. Because the king is on the throne saying, I have the burdens of the entire kingdom on my plate. Can I at least, in my throne room, be at peace? I'm concerned about armies pressing in from Egypt. I'm concerned about food getting where it needs to be. I'm concerned about the travel that is getting ready to take place. I'm concerned about all these things, so you're going to come into my room and be worried because you're sick? You're going to be concerned about your affairs? I'm the king. Get over it. That's the attitude of these dictators that are sitting on the throne. And it's a rightful attitude because they can say, you're done. Take him away and put him to death. In fact, we see this similar thing play out in the book of Esther. Right? Esther has to come. She is queen. She's queen. And she has to come to the king and she's worried because he could have her killed. By coming when she wasn't summoned into the courtroom, she could be killed. And so you read that narrative and you see that she, he raises his scepter and pronounces her safe and lets her come in. There's great reason to be afraid of the king. In fact, Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. It seems that Nehemiah had been controlling his emotions and either now he either slipped or he could have chosen to be sad. He could have chosen this moment to not control his emotions, to let his sadness and heartbreak come through. In either case, it happened. But understand that if he chose to, that is an incredibly risky move. It's one thing to slip. But let's draw this out a little bit more, the significance of this moment. I'm not trying to, to burden it down. I want you to understand how significant this is. He's the cupbearer. If he looks sad and sweaty and nervous, are you going to drink the wine? <laughs> are you going to trust this guy? Think about it. How would you respond if your cupbearer was visibly upset? You know, I play a game, me and my brother, I, I say I play. It's been a long time because it's really hard to play. It's called diplomacy. It looks like risk, but it is 8,000 times better and more complicated. And we've played multiple games that go at least 16 hours. Um, so is this a game? You could call it that. Uh, <laughs> we play, and what it is is you're set up in uh, the European theater and, and the war times, and you play as a country, much like Risk, except you don't get to just roll and get lucky, or in my case, never win. Um, this is all about diplomacy. You have to go to another guy, they're all standing around a table, you have to go to another guy and say, I'm going to move here, will you move here and support me for this? I'll support you over here. And then you go to another guy and you say, will you support me here? I've got this guy going there and we're going to cut him off. It's diplomacy. It's backstabbing. It's lying. Okay, I'll admit that. Um, you don't have to play that way. You'll lose. Uh, <laughs> you turn in your orders, and then all of the orders are read out loud as you all stand around the table, and everything happens. And so you have these these smiles of people who are going, <laughs> and then you have these other people who are like, "How could you lie to me in the game of diplomacy?" <laughs> oh, uh, so that's how this kind of goes. Now the problem is. I go and talk to one guy, and this other guy's calling me over. Like, rush, rush, rush. What's up? What are you trying to do? He's sweating, okay? <laughs> He's kind of stuttering a little bit and kind of like laughing under his breath, okay? Am I going to listen to this man? Am I going to do what he's asking me to do? No. He's either lying to me or he's trying to save his own tail. I'm not going to listen to this guy. If he has the cup that I'm supposed to drink and he wouldn't mind seeing me dead particularly when I am the king who just 14 years ago burned down his home city I'm not going to drink that cup understand before we get too far into this that 
this I had not been sad is a pivotal piece of this book. Understand that our, your personal integrity, my personal integrity is a huge and primary component of mission. The, the conduct with which Nehemiah conducted himself in front of the king was huge. It, it garnered him trust. It garnered him influence. And in this moment where things are kind of wrong, it still gains him trust. Reminded of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11-12, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, Nehemiah is an exile, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may instead see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You think of an elder is called to be blameless, right? Above reproach. That's this. The reason most accusations against an elder don't stick or should not stick is because they live in a blameless way. They keep their conduct pure. Peter's commanding all believers to do this so that when someone who doesn't like you at work complains to your boss about you, your boss will say, that doesn't sound like them. I don't think that they would do that. Personal integrity is huge. But I think about how we look to the world in our conduct. How did Nehemiah look to the king and his conduct? He was trustworthy. He was blameless. He was loved. And he displayed the character of God. How do we look when we go to lunch? Our kids run around, do what they want. Get in the way of the servers. Trip them up. We're not ready to order. Are, are we showing our servers that we care about them? That we understand that this is their place of business? This is where they make their money? And so we want to make it easy for them to do what they're supposed to do. We want to do our thing so that we can let them turn the table over and make another tip. In fact, we tip. We don't leave a tract. And say, this is worth way more than a $100 tip will ever be. No. How needy are we when we go out? I hesitate to send my food back for anything, even if there's hair in it, because I don't want to be perceived as needy. doesn't help that I'm usually wearing my renovations church jacket. <laughs> Understand that we represent God in our world. You, your attitude at work represents God in your life. Are you constantly complaining or are people complaining about you? You're the common denominator in most stories that involve you. <laughs> Are you taking care to live with personal holiness? This past weekend, Kevin DeYoung, uh, some of you may know him, uh, a speaker. He's a pastor of University Baptist Church in uh, East State up there. Um, he was talking about porn at a missions conference. Most people are like, why are you talking about porn at a missions conference? What does porn got to do with missions? And he quipped, quickly quips back, I'm sorry, you're asking what does personal holiness have to do with personal evangelism? Okay, that's what I thought you were asking. Porn has everything to do with missions. If you can't live a personally holy life, you're not going to be engaged in personal evangelism. You can substitute whatever you want for that item. That's what he was speaking of. What does our personal holiness have to do with mission? Everything. Everything. It is a huge component of who we are. So, to our narrative, he acted with integrity. And in this moment, the king asks, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? I can tell that you are not sick. Something else is going on. You're lying to me and scheming against me or something else is wrong. And the king deduces, why is your heart sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. 
And then I was very much afraid. And as I've said, he had reason to be. Guys, it's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be a believer and be afraid. What are you going to do with that in the moment is my question. But to be afraid is not sin. To remain in a state of fear is sin. You see the difference? To be afraid is to recognize reality. To live in fear and be paralyzed by it is sin. God says we should have no fear. Perfect love casts out fear. And what do we see Nehemiah run to? Perfect love. So he was very afraid. And so the king responds, or he responds, why should I not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire. And the king goes on and says, well, what would you request? (laughs) Artaxerxes is no dummy, okay? He's king for a reason. Let me say it this way. He's remained king for a reason, okay? It doesn't just pass down. He's remained king for a reason. He lasted longer than six months, which is better than a lot of Jewish kings. He's no dummy. He understands that Nehemiah is fishing for something. And so he very bluntly asks, what would you request? If you don't pay attention, you're going to miss that this verse right here is the answer to 111. Let me find favor in front of this man. This verse is God's answer to Nehemiah's four months of prayer from chapter 1. Four months Nehemiah is praying for this opportunity. What if he missed this opportunity? What if he missed it? What if Nehemiah was tired? What if he was busy? What if he hadn't got a good night's sleep in a while? He had to work an extra day this week. What if the kids are sick? What if all of our excuses could have been one of his? He would have missed the opportunity that God had been preparing for him. Are you aware of what's going on around you? To seek first the kingdom of God is to die to yourself. If we are only wrapped up in what's going on in our lives, we're going to miss what's happening around us. Happened to me this past week. Feeling angry for some reason earlier this week. I think it was Tuesday. I was just angry. And I, and I knew it, and I'm trying to shepherd myself out of that. I'm speaking truth into my life, and I still feel angry. I don't typically get angry, okay? I, I don't know if you know that about me. I'm, you know, the gentle giant, right? The teddy bear, that kind of guy. I am. I don't know where you've seen me angry. Um, I was angry. I don't know why. I, there are reasons, and some of them justifiable, but to put me in that state, I don't understand. And my wife had witnessed someone die. And all I can do is listen to her. I don't have words to say. I don't know if that's wisdom or if God was just gracious to me. I don't have anything to say. I'm wrapped up in what's going on in my life, and I'm missing what's going on around me. And as she's talking to me for a good while... I'm trying to pull myself up out of this. And I can't. And it took all week for me to realize that I was trying to pull myself up out of this. Even using scripture, guys, we can be our own savior. But we'll never make it happen. We have to be aware of what's going on around us so that we're not so consumed by what's happening in our brains and in our lives, and in our spheres of influence, that we miss what God is doing around us. And so how many opportunities do you miss out on? There's a saying that God has no grace for a man who leans against the shovel and prays for a ditch. Nehemiah was about prayer and action, and then when the opportunity presented itself, he said, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to take this opportunity. Why? Because this has been planned before time began. We saw in week one and in week two that this 
life that Nehemiah is trying to bring about in his homeland lines up with what God is trying to do. It lines up with his covenants. Nehemiah knew his Bible. And so he prayed that. And then God gave him the opportunity. So let's keep going. 4B. The king says, what would you request? What's the next sentence? So I prayed to the God of heaven. You think he just stopped? Hold on, king. I'm going to go pray. No, this is a breath prayer. This is a few, one, one of a very few in the Bible that is an unspoken prayer. Okay, He just prayed. This, to us, is, is huge. Again, when it comes to reading Scripture, we're going to experience both aspects of this today. Okay, In this early section, we're talking about each sentence. As I close today, we're going to read through like three chapters, okay? There are different ways you can read Scripture. Don't miss the significance of either one, okay? You can read for intimacy, or you can read for familiarity, okay? Both are okay. But don't do one to the neglect of the other. Look at this verse. So I prayed to the God of heaven. I don't have to take that into Hebrew to understand what's going on. I prayed... To God, this is huge. It illustrates a state of heart submission to God. This whole book is. This whole book is an illustration of heart submissiveness to God. And his desires and his actions. The whole book is an answer to the prayer of chapter 1. Think of prayer in this book as like the soundtrack to a movie, Star Wars. You guys know what happens when Darth Vader walks in, right? You got the Imperial March happening in your head? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ah, right, um, you got that one? And you've got like the, the Leia theme? Right, John Williams? Right. Imagine Star Wars with Danny Elfman. Right? Okay, so you understand how important soundtrack is, right? Let alone the opening line. I'm getting excited. Um, <laughs> soundtracks, all right? You know what's going on. You cannot be watching the movie and you can hear what's happening and know what's going on. Right? Prayer is that soundtrack to Nehemiah. It's under everything. It lets us know what's going on when we can't even see Because God is there. He's the third party in this conversation. Lest you think that this is simply between Artaxerxes and Nehemiah, you're missing the biggest player in the room. That's the king of heaven. Understand that mission is prayed constantly. Mission is prayed constantly in all its various forms, whether you are on your face in front of God or whether you breathe it in a moment. Prayer is has to happen constantly for it to be a mission of God. The next thing, I think this is the call for us today, is that mission is prepared to pay the cost. Mission is prepared to pay the cost. You'll notice in this dialogue that happens that Nehemiah never says the name Jerusalem. Why does Nehemiah not name the city that he's going to go to? He simply says things like, send me to the to Judah, the region, to the city of my father's tombs. He appeals to kind of the heart side of this. That I may rebuild it. Why does he not name Jerusalem? Nehemiah is shrewd. Okay? And shrewd, I typically think, has a connotation of being like nasty, like a shrew. <laughs> shrewd is different. We're commanded to be shrewd. Jesus gives a parable about the shrewd servant and he praises him. We're to be what? Wise as serpents, gentle as doves. God's people are to be smart people. You should know your way around people because you're about relationships with people. Why is this important that he doesn't name Jerusalem? Well, just like 14-ish years ago, this same king 
made a decree that nothing can happen to the city and it needs to be burned down again. You see, back in Ezra, the people that were around Jerusalem at the time wrote to Artaxerxes, the king. And in chapter 4 of Ezra, you see this letter both to and from Artaxerxes. It says in verse 11 of chapter 4, Your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, that's the Euphrates, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that, listen to this, rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. That's the way that they describe the city. And so then later when Artaxerxes writes back to them, he says, Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt, and take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? He's shrewd. He doesn't think Jerusalem. He's smart. Are you, are you shrewd in your relationships? Are you careful about the words that you speak? I mean, in this case, it's like going to Obama and asking him to repeal Obamacare. This is a decree that he made that he's passionate about for a reason, and you're going to go to a politician and say, yeah, can you repeal that? That never happens. <laughs> Understand the magnitude of this request. Politicians do what they want. And he's going to them and asking him to repeal an order the king made. How do you handle your conversations? Are you careful to not offend when you don't need to offend? Are you careful to be gentle? Are you careful to use words that will be grant you success? Matt and I joke all the time. There's the prophet way to say it, where you just spit it out. And then there's the other way. One's less direct, takes more time, may not explicitly accomplish what you want to say. The others, all of those, but may not be beneficial for those that hear. The New Testament, James, is <laughs> full of ways to talk. We need to understand that our tongue is dangerous. It can set fires. It can kill people. The tongue is dangerous, and Nehemiah knows how to use his. So he's prepared to pay the cost. We know that because he's been prepared, right? He, he knows how he's going to say this. Does he skip a beat in this passage? No, what do you need? This. Send me. In fact, that's verse 5. Send me. Understand that your mission is always going to be, is always going to have a cost. And so you have to be prepared to pay the cost because it's always going to have one. The problem I think we have in the American church is that we're waiting for opportunities that don't cost anything. We're waiting for opportunities that God puts in front of us to do good works that won't have a cost. There's always going to be a cost if it's a good work for God. Here's the deal, though. Christ is worth it. Christ is worth it. There's always going to be a cost. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you pride. It's going to cost you status. It's going to cost you influence. It's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you comfort. It's going to cost you acceptance. It could cost you your job. It could cost you your life. It's going to cost something. But Christ is worth it. We see in Hebrews chapter 10, I was reminded this weekend by Piper uh, in the missions conference talking about going to places where you may die. The writer of Hebrews is saying, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great Reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Nothing can cost too much. There's no act that God has prepared for us, no good deed that would cost too much. 
Because Christ is worth it. He's a better possession. You, you can take everything I have. You can take my family. Christ is worth it. Are you willing to lay it down? And Hebrews chapter 12, just a couple chapters later, says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who, this is Jesus, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus paid the ultimate price because he saw the joy that was waiting for him. And he's our joy. If he can do it because joy was waiting for him, we can. There's no excuse we have that is worth more than Christ. You've got to be willing to go. You've got to be willing to run the race. There are great amounts of witnesses in heaven. Chapter 11 of Hebrews, the hall of faith, are watching us as we run this race. I wonder how many of the witnesses in heaven right now are waiting to change the channel like I do when I come across golf. This is boring. Nothing's happening. When's football season? When's something going to happen? Are we going to run the race? Or are we going to do the work? Or are we just going to lean against our shovel and pray for our ditch? Nehemiah was shrewd. I think this is why marketing works. People aren't shrewd. The reason you see millions and billions of dollars in advertising, the reason people pay so much money for Super Bowl ads, the reason that you are inundated with ads everywhere is because marketing works. There are people who make fortunes off the gullibility and the lack of shrewdness of people simply because they say that something's better than another. Okay. I've got to have that. Marketing works because people are not shrewd. God's people are to be self-controlled, disciplined, stewards, not taken in by these type of schemes. And Nehemiah is smart. Because what does he ask for? You see the king's initial, although timid, response. He says, okay, what do you need? What would you request? And what, what does Nehemiah do? Let me get back to you. I'll send you an email in like a week. I've got to add some numbers up. Is that what we see? No. No, he breaks out his like list. It's like Christmas vacation, right? They're walking in the store. It's Clark and Eddie. And uh, Clark gets a light bulb, and Eddie picks up like four bags of food and just drops it on there, right? And Clark's saying, you know what? We know you guys are having some trouble this Christmas. Ellen and I, we'd like to help provide some toys for the kids. Oh, Clark, you don't have to do that. No, really, we, we want to do that. Oh, Clark, you're the best. Here's a list, right? And he just pulls it right out. He's got it bullet pointed already. Nehemiah's Eddie, kind of, in this case. <laughs> I know you saw all of the movie flash before your eyes right there, right? Um, Nehemiah pulls out his list. What do you need? <laughs> it's funny that you would ask. Um, I need letters for safe passage. I need uh, timber for beams, fortresses, temples, walls, my house. <laughs> you throw that in there just at the end. I don't know if you heard of me or not. My house. Um, I need a place to live. I would like that you provide that for me. He just lays it all out. He lays it all out. Understand that prayer in the life of Nehemiah did not negate, it did not alleviate, it did not remove at all preparation on his part. Jesus says to even count the cost regarding our salvation. What builder builds without having planned? That's his exact story. Nehemiah's planned. Understand the majesty and weight of this, this dialogue. To take one of the king's trees was punishable by death. He's asking for the trees. A lot of them. 
And he's very explicit here in what he's going to do. While he may not have named Jerusalem earlier, now he's saying specifically for beams for the wall, for the fortress, a fortress. I just burned this place down. You're our enemy, but I'm going to build a fortress for you, a temple so that you can worship a god. That's not me, because I think I'm a god. I'm Artaxerxes, the greatest human on earth. I'm a god, but I'm going to let you build another temple. I'm even going to build you your house. Take it. Prayer does not alleviate preparation. We've got to be prepared. If we're going to do these good works, we've got to pay attention to what's going on around us. We've got to take advantage of the opportunities, and we've got to be ready for them. How are you going to counsel a family member who comes to you with a child that died if you don't know the Word of God? That's not the time to hand them mine or Matt's business card. That's the time for you to do a good work that God prepared for you. What are you going to do when a friend loses their job, when their wife cheats on them, if you don't know the Word of God? We have to be prepared, and we have no excuse. Not here. Not here. If you're not reading the Word of God, if you are not seeking to be a student of the Word, if you are not abiding in Him, how are you going to answer a Haitian brother that comes to you with four books that have been translated to their language? And you have a shelf full of them that you won't touch. There's no excuse for us, guys. I guess the question I'm, I'm struggling with is at the beginning, we talk about what's it going to take? What's next? What's next is simply us doing it. Just do the work. If you stare at the shovel all day long, it's not going to dig itself. I, I don't want to sound harsh, okay? But I'm concerned for the growth of the church. If we come in Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and someone asks the question, what's different from last week? And we answer nothing. I'm concerned about the church when in DNA groups we have our gospel change project and you show up after two weeks, or every two weeks you meet, and nothing's changed. That's really concerning to me. It's concerning in my life when I look at my calendar, I look at my bullet journal, I look at what's going on in my life, and I see periods where there's not been change. Why is that? I'm not seeking first the kingdom of God. I'm seeking other good things, probably. But it's not what's best. Because I want next Sunday when you guys come here, for Matt to be able to stand up here and be like, what's changed? And something, something's changed. But I, I get that it's not going to be massive and monumental. Not every week. There are times, there are events maybe where that things, those things happen, where you see Scripture in a new light. And you, I mean, this past weekend was great for me in this, uh, in this cross conference. It was a bright opportunity for me. But that's not the only one in the past three years. We have to be able to come week by week and understand, yes, it's a trajectory. I'm heading that way. But I'm heading. I'm going that way. I didn't level off for a little while. Are there going to be times in your life where you plateau? Yeah, I get that. Are you seeking first the kingdom of God? That's my concern. Look at the turnaround that we see here. As Nehemiah seeks first the kingdom of God, he's been willing to lay down his own life. Look at the turnaround. Not only is, the, is Nehemiah going to get to go, but the king's paying for it. I think you'll find that when you go where God would have you, that when you do these good works that he's prepared for you in advance, I think you'll often find that a king has indeed paid the price already. God has paid the price. The king of the universe has paid the price already. So while it costs you everything, it costs you nothing. Nehemiah says, and the king granted me 
what I asked. Last thing I want you to see, mission is powered by God for His glory. Mission is powered by God for His glory. Let me ask a question. Who's the hero of this book? He's not yet been named. Who's the hero? Nehemiah, Nehemiah makes it very clear. God is the hero of this. this. This happened. He granted me what I asked because the good hand of my God was upon me. See that God prepared a good work, and Nehemiah still had to do all the work. God didn't just make it happen. Nehemiah had to do all the work. But God had prepared it for him. And this is simply the working out of God's sovereign plan. I mean, we see in Isaiah 46.10, these should be on the screen, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Genesis eighteen fourteen, talking about Abram and Sarai. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you, about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Beautiful. I think more on the nose for our particular passage would be Proverbs 21.1. Listen to this. Think of Nehemiah in front of Artaxerxes. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. That's our God. That's the hero of the story. This is why it's okay that it will cost you everything. Because Christ is worth it. Let's bring some New Testament understanding to this passage. So we jump back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. We'll go two verses prior to where we started today. Verse 8. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in in them because i want you to understand that this epic story of nehemiah this old testament epic with all of its soundtrack behind it with all of its trilogy and ezra nehemiah and esther with all of its pomp and circumstance god does not love nehemiah more or less because of what he's doing nehemiah is faithful and that pleases god but God would not love Nehemiah any less if he didn't do this. God would not love Nehemiah any less if God had instead had Artaxerxes deny his request. God would not love Nehemiah any less if he had had Artaxerxes put him to death. God does not love us more or less because of good works. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works. There's nothing involved that we're doing that changes the love that God has for us. We can rest and celebrate that. We are saved by grace to good works. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for two good works. I want you guys to understand that God doesn't change his good hand. We don't end verse 8 differently if Nehemiah didn't listen, didn't obey. God's good hand is still on his people because he loves his people. Understand that it's God's grace 
that got the mission done. They got the opportunity done. They got this good work accomplished. It was God's grace. Nehemiah simply aligned himself with God's vision for how it should be. I want you to see, it's not, it's not that, it's not this. If I want God's good grace, if I want God's love, if I want him to love me, then I must act a certain way. That's not the way it is. It's repentance and faith. It's the same thing we've been talking about every week. It's repentance and faith. God loves you. Repent. Live in faith. He loves you, or he will love you. We talked last week about how we feel like we can't come to him until we get our act cleaned up, and then he'll love us again. No, he loves you. Run to him now. We understand that we are set free to good work. So run with abandon. Run with abandon. Run the race as if to win, not as if to finish but I'm going to run carefully so I don't twist my ankle. Run with abandon as if to win the race. There's certainly an, an element of preparation, of being shrewd, of being a steward, of using caution. I get that. We use that to, to excuse the fact that we're walking or crawling in the race. Run with abandon. God has prepared the work. He has powered it. He's paid for it. You have the power of the Holy Spirit, Acts 1.8. You're his witnesses. Go forward. Run with abandon. What is stopping us? I don't get it. His hand is upon us. And it doesn't matter whether it's a big thing or a small thing. Do them. It's a good work. Just do it. God puts so many little things in our lives to help us understand stewardship, to help us understand caution, to help us understand what it means to, to be true, to be smart, so that as we grow in Christ in that trajectory, we're running full speed with abandon. Church, I want us to run together. I want you guys to see the power that God has given you, the good works that he's called you to, and I want us to run together. There's too much good works to be done. There's too many opportunities that we are missing. If mission's going to get done, it's got to be done. We have to do it. I think ultimately, I know this in my heart as I, as I kind of wrap today up, I think it's an issue of love and trust. I think the Christian life, the struggle that we have on whether or not we're going to do these good works that he's prepared for us is an issue of love and an issue of trust. And the first question is, do you trust him? Do you trust God? Do you trust him? If you trust him, then you'll know he won't fail you. You'll believe what God says about himself. You'll believe what he says about you. You'll believe that seeking first his kingdom is the best thing for you. It's a trust issue. Can you trust God? And I think it's a love issue. Do you love the kingdom of God more than you love your own kingdom? Now that's the battle that we have to face. Understand that seeking first the kingdom of God is for our good. If we seek the kingdom of God, then these other things will be added unto you. Do you love his kingdom more than you love your own. Let me let me repeat. You are in a specific position in a specific situation for an explicit purpose. Think about where you are. What are you going to do with your life? What are you gonna do with, with today? You're gonna be inside most likely, unless you're careening down a mountain. What are you going to do with today? What are you going to do with the words that you speak? Are you gonna be shrewd? Are you gonna build up the body? Are you going to set fire? Are you going to murder? Yeah, think about the, who else is going to lead your wife, gentlemen? Who's going to do it? You're in a specific position, in a specific situation for an explicit purpose. Who's going to lead your wife? Ladies, who's going to support your husband, if not you? Who's going to do that? 
You're in a specific position. In a specific situation for an explicit purpose. Because who's going to lead your kids? Who else will reach your coworkers? Who else will discipline your own heart? We have to step out in faith. We have to do the work.